hey, it's another edition of Talking Foosball, the Bundesliga show, your source for all things German football. I am your host, Matt Herman, and this week we are going to be zooming in on the big boys of the Bundesliga, bigfooting the league, and a few other situations. A lot went on on match day five. With me this week is my cherished associate, Nicholas Bildhagen. Good to see you again. Yeah, great to be back after a week of having to do some work at work, actually, for a weekend. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's been some weekend in the Bundesliga, and uh, t- t- to be honest, I'm, I'm still trembling from that Holland goal. That was just magnificent. That was Norway's pride all over again. Yeah, of course, we will be talking about Holland. We'll be talking about Lewandowski, the other big goal-scoring hero of the weekend. We'll be talking about, you know, quite a few games as it happens. There were nine of them, and we were going to address each one, at least in some form, in just a moment. All right, here comes part one of Talking Foosball, the part where we talk about the best of the match day just gone. This was match day five. And, uh, you know, compared to match day four, I would say it was uh, a lot more eventful, a lot more goals, a lot more sort of definitive results. There were actually home wins on the on the weekend. And I think the place where we want to start is probably the two big, big boys of the Bundesliga. By that, I mean Borussia Dortmund and Bayern Munich. Both of them were big winners on the day. You know, you already mentioned him in the intro to the show. I think it's only fair that we allow you to talk about Ailing Holland as soon as possible, because I think you have a lot of, uh, you know, sort of Norwegian pride to work out here. It was a 3-0 win for Dortmund in the Revere Derby. That is pretty much the biggest uh, derby in Germany and one that uh, fans in that particular region, the Ruhr Valley region, look forward to more than any other. Obviously, kind of a weird derby. You know, it's a stadium with not a lot going on inside. Not the kind of passion you expect from a uh, Revere derby. But, you know, at least there was passion on the pitch from one side. <laughs> I mean, you got to give it to Manuel Baum. He uh, was truly very passionate on the uh, in the dugout there. I mean, if he had a drinking game, took a shot from whenever he yelled Zwei to Bella, uh, you know, get to the second ball, or Mitte zumachen, <laughs> close the gap. Um, <laughs> Mitte zumachen, that's so great. <laughs> you probably would have needed some medical attention after 10 or 15 minutes of that match, because honestly speaking, this was a one-way street. Schalke defended sort of well for one half, but, you know, once Dortmund got that goal, which they eventually always were going to get, that side just broke apart, really. Yes, that Holland goal, absolutely magnificent. That connection that he has going with Jane Sancho is out of this world. When these two link up, when you see that goal with Holland just collecting, you know, Dalton were in defense, he collects the ball from a clearance and just waits and waits and waits for Sancho to be free. And once once he passes the ball to Sancho, he just goes on a run and he's so incredibly quick to be such a tall, lanky guy. And then Sancho plays this beautifully weighted pass if he would have hit it any harder, Holland wouldn't have been able to get onto it. If he would have hit it any softer, the Schalke defender would have cut it out. He just had the perfect amount of pressure on it, but then it goes onto Holland's wrong foot. He, he's, you know, he gets it onto his left foot, has actually perfect touch with that. And after that, he has just the presence of mind not to go for sheer strength and power. No, he just lubs it over the keeper. And yeah, what a goal that was. Goal of the match day for me. If I want to rave on a little bit more about Erling Haaland, he is actually getting towards, you know, the sort of goal-scoring prowess that puts you into sort of historical stats category. He has 18 goals from 20 matches now. Only Uwe Zähler uh, managed to get more goals than that in his first 20 Bundesliga appearance. Uns Uwe managed to get 19. And, you know, as for Haaland, he, you know, with his 18 goals, he's actually managed to outscore Schalke by seven goals so far in the calendar year of 2020. Yeah. And and folks, if you don't know about Uns Uwe, look him up. This was a hugely important player for Germany. This was back in the, the day when Germany specialized in squat little center forwards who scored an inordinate amount of goals. Yeah, I mean, they had Gerd Müller, who was sort of known as a, as a guy with chubby legs. And then they had Uns Uwe, who had sort of like a a little beer stomach, but you know he he you know he he scored his he scored a fair amount of beautiful goals back in the day and uh, really important player for HSV. But you know, returning to the match and returning to Schalke, you know you you got to wonder is, is Schalke can they still be saved? And what I have to say is that 
you have to take a look at the results uh, through the prison of who they were actually facing. From the three matches under Baum they've had, you would have expected them, realistically speaking, to take points in one of those matches against Union Berlin, whilst RB Leipzig and Borussia Dortmund are probably bridged too far right now for Schalke. So, I mean, what's really going to be telling for Schalke and in terms of if they can turn it around, if it's, you know, the matches against Augsburg and Union Berlin and uh, Werder Bremen and, and these these sort of sides, that sort of caliber of side, because if they can start to get points, gather points from those matches, they might actually be uh, able to climb out of those relegation places. If they can't, and they can't do so on a new coach, oh well, they are really in trouble. Yeah, that's that seems to be a very troubling uh, dynamic for them right now. You already mentioned that the two of the three opponents who Manuel Baum's uh, Schalke have played have been, you know, two of the three strongest teams in the league. So I guess we can't, you know, fault him too much for not getting more out of these games. But things aren't getting a whole lot easier. I mean, they do have Stuttgart and Mainz coming up in their next two games, but, you know, Stuttgart have shown themselves to be pretty capable. Um, Mainz less so, obviously. But, you know, following those two, they've got Wolfsburg, Gladbach, Leverkusen. You know, this is not going to be an easy ride. I have not seen a whole lot of uh, evidence that Manuel Baum has changed this team's uh, either, either you know, tactical setup or, or you know, uh, level of, of engagement in any meaningful way. I'm not at all sanguine about Schalke's future. <laughs> I mean, the, probably the best thing Manuel Baum has done is he's given Bundesliga fans who are college students at the same time a new drinking game. Mitte zu machen, zweite Bälle. Take a shot. Go to the hospital. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's going to lead to some you know some some serious uh, miscreants. Let's talk a little bit about this performance from a Dortmund perspective. Obviously, when you win three nil in a home derby, you make everybody pretty happy. How do you see this game in terms of sort of getting? I don't know, building Dortmund a little bit of consistency. I mean, there was a lot of disappointment in, in this past week's, you know, their, their European game in, in Rome against Lazio was a real come down. Getting back into gear in the league is obviously feels really nice. Is there a future in store for Dortmund where they can do this game after game? Or is this going to be another sort of topsy-turvy situation this year, you reckon? Yeah, I mean... There's been an awful lot of chat about Dortmund not being consistent enough. Dortmund, uh, you know, losing against weaker sides under Favre and Favre has sort of been stamped as a coach who's not capable of winning the German championship because, you know, much like Pep Guardiola these days, who's not able to do Champions League football anymore, he's sort of like gotten that, <laughs> gotten that rap that, you know, Favre, he can't win titles because he's, he's, he's not a good enough coach to do that. But um, if you take a closer look at the stats that Borussia Dortmund have had under Favre, they've actually taken 2.02 points on average per game, which is ridiculously good. I mean, honestly, that's that's better than Jurgen Klopp. That's better than Otmar Hitzfeld. Those are the last two coaches who've really performed consistently well with Borussia Dortmund over the years. And he's outdone them. By, you know, some margin, uh, I think he's outdone uh, Klopp by 0.12 points uh, per game, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a considerable improvement. But I think Borussia Dortmund's biggest problem in that sense is that Bayern are so far gone. They're so much better than the rest of the league. They're so much better than Dortmund. They're so much better than RB. They're, you know, when once you take a look at, at those stats under Hansi Flick, you know, 45 matches, 23 clean sheets, winning percentage of over 90%, how do you compete against that? And yes, true, uh, Dortmund have struggled against sides from the top four, top five divisions in the Champions League, but honestly speaking, they went out to Paris Saint-Germain last season, which is a side that buys Neymar for 222 million euros. How could you expect a side like Dortmund who pretty much haven't spent as much money on their assembling their entire squad when Paris Saint-Germain just goes out and buys one player for that sort of money. I mean, you have to put these things into the right context, I feel. And uh, yes, I do think that Dortmund could potentially, you know, profit from winning these sort of uh, tight matches against Augsburg and such. But 
honestly speaking, the room for improvement is minor in, in my book. Yeah, yeah. I, I feel like the Bundesliga is just kind of in a different space right now than some of the, the years when Dortmund were actually winning titles. I mean, I, I just went back and looked, for example, at the first title that, that Dortmund won under Jurgen Klopp. They won the league with, with 75 points which ain't going to win you the league anymore, No, uh, I don't think. Uh, so, you know, it, it's, it's a situation where, as you say, if, you, if you're picking up two points a game, you know, 2.02, that will generally get you into second or third place. And, you know, for a lot of people, for a lot of Dortmund fans, or perhaps the more overheated ones, that's just not enough. But, you know, that, that, that's where you're at with, with this coach. I mean... Dortmund play some of the best football ever under Favre. I think he's one of the most detail-oriented, most brilliant football minds we have walking around on this earth right now. And the guy that had before him was Thomas Tuchel. Also fairly brilliant. I mean, you've Tuchel, you've had Favre. Uh, where do you go from that? I mean, who could potentially come in and, you know, improve this side even further? You know, I've... The last time that question was really seriously discussed by the German media, there were an awful lot of people who thought, you know, since Bayern had fired Nico Kovac, maybe you should give him a chance. But not to be too harsh on Nico Kovac, but honestly speaking, if you have the choice between Nico Kovac and bringing him in and letting Lucien Favre go or keeping Lucien Favre, you're keeping Lucien Favre every time. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think there's just he has a more a more proven track record of bringing teams from a sort of OK performance level up to something, you know, challenging for titles and holding them there. And uh, Nico Kovac, say what you want. He won a he won a German uh, cup title. But I think the, the his track record of actually getting teams up to a, a level of excellence and keeping them there is pretty patchy. Okay, let's move on from this game. I guess maybe we, you know, I, I said we were going to start with, with Dortmund and Bayern. And, you know, I'm just going to make everyone wait a little longer oh, for uh, oh. for the Bayern aspect. Because I think that we should probably tip our hats to the, the club who are actually topping the table right now first, which is to say RB Leipzig. They got a 2-1 home win over uh, Hertha BSA on the weekend. Kind of a weird game. Obviously, I was watching this one and I was disappointed with the results and to me it, it was it was a game that you know under other circumstances could have gone another way with compliments to uh a certain tobias stieler <laughs> nick but i don't want to focus on that right now I, i'd prefer to focus on on rb leipzig and the fact that they have really found a much more sort of rich vein of form than many of us expected them to find in the post timo werner era i mean this was a pretty impressive attacking display yeah i mean they created 29 shots uh, which is basically a, a shot every three minutes um new Bundesliga record for them so yeah uh in attack they look pretty decent they create chances in pretty much every match but uh, you know it turns out that they have the sort of quality in other positions and all around the pitch that sort of can make up for the fact that they're losing in the sort of caliber of uh of a striker that that is timo werner Angelino, for instance, this season, absolutely out of this world. Uh, Emil Forsberg, I've mentioned him before, having a fantastic season. So, yeah, I mean, they, they make up for it in numbers and they do create those chances and they take them so far, so far, so good then. Having said that, they really haven't had an awful lot of uh, big teams they've played against. Uh, you know, the only other big boys of the league they've played against is uh, Bayer Leverkusen. That was a 1-1 draw. And let's keep in mind that, you know, Leverkusen are now without Kai Harvards and still sort of trying to find their way. So it's going to be exciting and quite telling to see where RB are going to be at when they are playing against, you know, Dortmund and Bayern and, and you know, these bigger sides. And uh, last season, RB, uh, towards the, the second half of the season, they had sort of a few matches where they sort of gave up leads and uh, conceded unnecessary goals and... That is probably Julian Nagelsmann's biggest priority, getting rid of those sort of matches uh, in order to collect more points. If they can do all of those things, well, we might be in for a three-horse race if uh, Dortmund play to the best of their potential and Bayern maybe drops off ever so slightly. But yeah, I think uh, I think what we can say for sure is that uh, Timo Werner's departure hasn't hurt 
RB Leipzig to such an extent that they're not going to be able to make a Champions League finish this season. Yep. Yeah, I'll believe it when I see it. Of course, we saw Leipzig get off to a pretty good start last year. They were, you know, if I'm not mistaken, we're leading yeah, they, they going were into the, the, the Winter Palace. Herbstmeister. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But um, things did not quite uh, finish in, in that way. I mentioned a little bit of grumbling before about Tobias Stiele. He was the referee in this game. And, and principally, what? I had a problem. Well, I mean, it, there, there was other there was other things. I mean, he he. He had a good penalty call against Hertha, which was quite legitimate. It was a poor challenge from John Cordoba on uh, Diet Upamecano. But he missed another penalty shot, which would have benefited Hertha. He you know, threatened to send off or meant to send off uh, Jessica Ngankam in, in injury time, which he, of course, then corrected using VAR. You know, good for you. But... You mentioned <laughs> Deovasio Seifalk, this uh, this you know Dutch wing back who has joined Hertha this season. He came on as a substitute at halftime, and in four minutes managed to get himself sent off uh, for two yellow cards. That seemed I don't know what point he was trying to prove to whom with that uh, action, but it definitely rubbed me the wrong way. <sighs> I mean, refereeing is not necessarily always an accurate science because a lot of what you decide and a lot of how you decide uh, in terms of how am I going to punish this? Am I going to give the player a strict talking to or am I going to give him that yellow card? And, you know, a lot of those situations, they, they tend to border be borderline. You can give a yellow card, but you don't necessarily have to. And, and you know, once there is that sort of element of humans having to use a bit of what the Germans call Fingerspitzengefühl. Mistakes are going to be made or things, some decisions might be too harsh whilst others are not far-reaching enough. As for a player coming up, coming onto the pitch and being overly eager and being sent off after four minutes, you might just think that the referee could have given the first yellow card and the second time around just, you know, Given the guy a stern talking to saying, okay, one more time, you're off, instead of putting a team at such a massive disadvantage. But you know, if you if you go by the by the rules, by the letter of the law, you cannot fault Stieler for giving those two yellow cards, can you? If you go by the rules, it is within the uh referee's authority uh to give yellow handout yellow cards for both these situations. It's just a measure of it's just a you know, as I said, when, when humans have to, to make judgment calls, it's just a matter of that individual's judgment. And sometimes, you know, judgments might be a little bit off. Yep. Yep. I, I agree. I mean, I, I can't say that either one was a, a stone cold wrong decision, but the <laughs> the situational awareness, let's just say, of, of having a player who had just come on the pitch and basically you know, his only two meaningful actions in the game were, you know, both a judge to have been, you know, yellow card worthy. Yeah, that's the result. You send the guy off. But it it it, it doesn't necessarily speak to, I don't know, a way of, of, of conducting refereeing that is going to necessarily get you good results in the long run. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that is pretty much when you want a guy like Manuel Grefe or yep. Dennis Eitekin. I wish they would. <laughs> I wish they could referee all the games there to play. Them. I mean, Dennis Eitekin would have just gone over the before the you know, second time and just giving him like this really sort of nasty stare and say, you know, telling him one more time. Whilst Manuel Grefe, who is, we cannot, cannot officiate matches of Hertha because he is from Berlin. I know. <laughs> he, he would have just, you know, gone in with a smile and just, you know, made that hand gesture just, you know, Ross from France was so famous for doing just, you know, the two hands just, yeah, calm down, calm down. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, these two guys, they, they have actually perfected the art of refereeing and they, you know, they seldomly get these sort of things wrong. So yeah, but um, as I said, refereeing is not an accurate science and uh, these sort of judgment calls are part of it. And uh, sometimes referees are making those judgment calls that piss off, piss off uh especially if we are fans of that given team that is at the end of a player being, you know, sent off after four minutes for two yellow cards. Um, having said that, I, I do have uh, I do have a bit of stats uh, regarding that. You've gone into the uh, archives. I have, as, as I'm famous for doing. 
So somebody asked me on Twitter, well, this must be some sort of records. Seafolk uh, sent off after four minutes. And uh, as I found out, no, no, it's actually not. There were actually two, there are actually two players who've been subbed on or have been sent off quicker than that. Simon Rolfes, uh, he was on the pitch for less than two minutes, got a straight red card. And then there was Marcelo Rivero Tic, uh, who uh, was an Eintracht Frankfurt player back in the day. He only got four or five matches for them. Uh, he was sent off after, lo and behold, 46 seconds in the match against Dortmund. And, uh, you know, going by how we just talked about an Eintracht player, uh, that might just be a good segue to get into what Eintracht were doing on this weekend. What were they doing? I, what I forgot. What indeed were Eintracht doing? Well, if you need any reminding, uh, they were losing oh. 5-0 uh, <laughs> at the Allianz Arena. It was it was not their day. Um, <laughs> any care to, to to share any factoids uh, for us about just how not their day it was? Well, well let's just say it was Bynes' day. Um, and uh, right now, at thirty two years, uh, Robert Lewandowski is in in the form of his life. Uh, Ten goals from five matches. He's actually the first player in the Bundesliga who has done that. And, uh, you know, that has had a knock-on effect on the goal-scoring exploits of uh, Bayern München. And how 22 goals from five matches, which is a new Bundesliga record. The old one was at 20 goals after five match days. And that went all the way back to the 73-74 season and was held by Borussia Mönchengladbach. So, um, yeah, right now, Bayern are actually on course to, you know, they've, they've had one season where they scored 101 goals back in the 70s and they actually managed to get to 100 goals last season. So yeah, they're, they're on, on course to pretty much trash that record. And additionally, Gert Müller's all-time all scoring record for one season is, is 40 goals, which is also from the 70s and that still stands to this very day. But... You know, going by how Robert Lewandowski only has 31 more goals to score from 29 matches, you wouldn't put it past him to break it this season, would you? No, no, and I, I've been I've been burned before thinking that he might uh, have a chance at that record, but um, you couldn't be more right than than to say that this year, if he's anywhere near the pace that he is on uh, for, for for the remainder of the season, that record is going to be shattered. Anyway, we last week gave pretty short shrift to Eintracht Frankfurt and and their one uh, one draw among the many one one draws last week. Uh, so this week we decided to go a little deeper with Brian Sanders of the Hey Eintracht Frankfurt podcast. He was good enough to speak to us for this week's edition of Talking Foosball, as well as to record a deep dive. And if you're asking, what's a deep dive? A deep dive is uh, our, our latest creation for uh, Patreon subscribers, wherein we uh, devote an entire podcast length, you know, 45, 50-minute episode all about one club, about where they're at right now, about how they got where they are, about little bits of history. And uh, if, you, if you join up on Patreon, you can listen to that about Eintracht Frankfurt. But just to take things for this podcast, I mean, the place that I started with him was knowing that Eintracht have become known as, you know, Bayern killers over the past couple of years. They've gotten that Famous win in the DFB Pokal final a couple of years ago. Then the Hinrunde last season, they had an even more famous win, the one that uh, led to Niko Kovac being shown the door, more or less. What was it that went so wrong on Saturday? Well, one thing that had during our time playing against the Bayern, Lewandowski could always score, but the thing was we were holding him to just one goal. And when you have the likes of Gnabry and Coman doing what they do, it really – it's re look, you got to come out with your A game. And even then, it might not be enough. And Lewandowski just – he's going to go down as one of the greatest, if not the greatest, striker. Yes, I know that there are some that will uh, prefer certain other Bayern uh, strikers from the 70s and 80s over Lewandowski, but – when you play up against a guy like that, and Eintracht's defense has been a weak point all season long, and we highlighted on Hey Eintracht Frankfurt week in, week out, and uh, look, he took us apart. And it was the kind of performance that you knew would happen. Uh, you also knew that, to be honest, I thought the only way that we would get anything out of this match is if we downgraded ourselves to the old Niko Kovac strategy of just 
kick them until they bleed and then uh, take that one chance that you got and try and make the most of it. There were a few moments that Eintracht had that were actually really a good attacking thrust. I was watching it with some Bayern fans and they kept on saying, oh, wow, that looked kind of ugly. I'm glad you missed that shot. And I'm just kind of cringing there, just trying to hold my tongue. But the thing was the midfield just got overran. Uh, Bayern used every single tool that they have in their arsenal, and that is a considerable amount. Eintracht's defense just was not up to it. Kevin Trapp kind of, you know, he gave in one goal, but, you know, that's four other goals that are out there that the rest of the team kind of wasn't able to help out. These matches happened. We played them in the after the Corona pause and – that wasn't the best of performances, though we did pull a couple of goals back that made uh, the Bayern Munich fans take note. And we didn't do too bad against the, them at the DFB Pokal semifinals. But, you know, it it was still just one-way traffic. And again, it was, was one-way traffic that this team was not able to uh, handle. And we also, in case anyone had no idea, we had a debutante in defense in a Tuta, a Brazilian defender that we picked up for a nominal fee. That, you know, he didn't look too bad, but I knew this was going to be a rough go. It uh, was a little bit rougher than I anticipated. But, hey, isn't that what playing Werder Bremen in the next week is all about, you know, having to pick me up? Yeah, yeah, we'll we'll get to that in a second. I I do want to ask you (laughs) another thing or two about the defense and about um, injuries. Mm. I mean, the reason why uh, Tuta was playing is because uh, David Abraham has been injured. He's only missed, I guess, one game, and I'm not sure how long he's going to be out for. But, you know, he's not the youngest defender anymore. Neither is Makoto Hasebe. Oh, Um, love that. (laughs) I do. I I love your back line. Your starter back line is like, you know, when it's all healthy and and, and working is is amazing with, you know, Martin Hinteregger also being in in that group. It's amazing, and yet also the oldest backline in the entire Bundesliga. And if it gets much older, which you know Abraham has said that he wants to return to Argentina, and good good on him for wanting to kind of enter his twilight years and also return home to his kid, who's really just kind of been hanging out there due to obvious. Uh, pandemic issues. Eintracht is now having to change how they are defensively and Makoto Asebi, thanks to his unbelievable diet and exercise routine, has been, you know, he's made more appearances of any Asian player in Bundesliga history. He's going to go down as one of the real ambassadors to the club, especially once he decides if ever, you know, to hang up his boots. It's just that Eintracht has not really Done very well with uh, bringing in new blood. Marco Ross was already pretty much retired and almost a coaching kind of uh, routine when uh, he hung it up at the beginning of July. I mean, he was really just kind of a just a bench, uh, a good guy to have in the the, the locking room, the changing room. Simon Follett was uh, Nico Kovac signing that didn't really work with what Adi Hutter wanted to do. Jekyll Williams is still an enigma. How they can't get him off the books or is beyond me. There's all sorts of things with Eintracht's defense that it just makes me happy that we have a good enough attack that we're able to overshadow our rather defensive frailties. Speaking of your attack, which I agree, it's in, at least uh, up front, things are looking very, very good. I think both Bastost and Andre Silva have looked good, and they've looked good together. You are missing, though, somebody who's been hugely important over the last couple of years, Philip Kostic, who mm-hmm. uh, you know got hurt in the first half of that uh, game against Hertha. And maybe we'll be back uh, in, in two or three games. I heard that he's gotten back into sort of Lauf training, as, as the Germans call it. He's, yeah. he's running with the team, but he's not uh, taking part in, in scrimmages or anything like that. How do you think you all have been coping without him? And, and, I mean, how much of a boost do you reckon that will give you once he comes back? immensely his being gone from the team there's nothing wrong with uh zuba who he picked up in a swap deal with hoffenheim with the pokal final goal winner uh gasinovich going in the other opposite direction zuba has been a pretty good fill-in role but it's obvious that he would be more suited to the middle of the pitch when it comes to our wing play i mean when uh, Torre has actually been pretty good on the right wing, just, you know, not really. When you go up against Bayern, it's really kind of, <laughs> you're not, unless you just have a great day, it's, 
it's really hard to he's developed really well into a good kind of wing back winger role which uh was what he was kind of known for as we bought him from uh monaco from league oh but once costage comes back i mean bringing and the loan pickup of amen Yunus, i think those guys are gonna terrorize uh the rest of the bundesliga now when he will exactly come back is kind of up in the air. Honestly, I've personally circled more uh, Eintracht versus Leipzig, which is match day eight uh, after the November international break. We'll see what happens with that international break, but that's <laughs> that's by the by. In the meantime, I think what Eintracht has kind of done uh, with Zubar is good enough that you go up against a Bremen, you go up against a Stuttgart, you will be able to get some pretty good pretty good production out of those guys. It's just when you go up against a Bayern, it just ain't going to happen. And if you go up against a team like Cohn, who will try and – or a, more prominently, Armenia Bielefeld, who will just you know try and uh, you know take the bombardment and hopefully nick one on the counter like they did when they did face us, it is uh, – you do kind of miss that – you know, sparkle that uh, uh, that he's uh, cost is just able to bring to the squad. And once he comes back, I mean, he's only the best winger in the Bundesliga, in my opinion, outside of Dortmund and Bayern. He shows it week in, week out. And once he is back, everyone's going to look at him and think, oh, wow, why has no one else picked this guy up? And sometimes I can't believe that he still plays for the Eintracht. And if anyone wants to try and uh, go after him, I'll just say keep your sticky paws off. He is ours and, you know, drape him in the biggest Eintracht flag that he can never leave. All right. All right. Let's do a couple of quick questions. As you have mentioned, uh, looking down the pike, you have uh, a home match against Werder, away to Stuttgart, home to RB Leipzig, and then away to Union Berlin. We got uh, a potential for as many as 12 points there uh, if things really go your way. Mm, um, yeah. How many points do you actually think are, are, are in that for you? I've watched Leipzig too much to discount the fact that the best that we can do. Now, I'll point out right now that the match uh, against Werder Bremen has been declared to be a Geisterspieler, so no fans are going to be uh, watching that one after. Uh, let's see, uh, 8,000 were there for Hoffenheim, and 6,500 were there against Bielefeld. Now, I have a feeling Germany is headed for a lot of Geisterspieler in the next uh, few match days. Exactly. It, with the recent rise in COVID cases, I think that even Union will have to play Geisterspieler in the not-too-distant future against Eintracht. And we'll see how good Union is then. But of the four matches ahead of our tussle with uh, Dortmund, which you know, we'll see where Dortmund is at at that point in time, but Werder Bremen is a match that I am really looking forward to. I think on Halloween Day that... The kiddos watching at home will be super stoked running out to go trick-or-treating because they'll be smiling because, you know, Eintracht will have put uh, three points on the board and we'll be still in the European chase. Stuttgart has been – I figured that they would be a surprise package, much like Eintracht was when they returned from the Bundesliga after our most recent relegation where we ended up finishing in sixth place and ha- – and w- you know, was able to participate in the subsequent season's Europa League campaign. Stuttgart has been that team that you look at and you're like, well, hey, <laughs> it's also a positive that there's an American, you know, at the helm of that club. They're a really tricky team to play against. And I really look forward to the fireworks that are going to happen because Stuttgart and Frankfurt, uh, whenever they get together, usually it's not a bore nil nil draw, needless to say. And if that gives us momentum headed up against Leipzig, who, I mean, they might have sold off Timo Werner, but they're still uh, Leipzig, and uh, they still pack a wallop. And Julian Nagelsmann has only, you know, had more time with his players, and it's only a matter of time before uh, they get it fixed to be able to play on both fronts in Europe and Germany. But 
you know, for the remaining matches that we have until the kind of brief break that we have between Christmas and New Year's before we get right back to it and mat- between match day 13, match day 14, where we'll have the DFA Pokal uh, second round. Well, I guess that's kind of dependent on uh, Schalke finally being able to play their first round match. I'm sure <laughs> Talking Foosball will take care of that. There's a lot of points that are out there for Eintracht. Wolfsburg will be tricky. You know, they play a pretty stingy defense. Gladbach, I think three points will be on the table completely for Eintracht versus Gladbach, exclusively because they may have a good start. 11, uh, you know, not too bad bench, but with playing in the Champions League and the Bundesliga basically on a two-match-per-week basis, which is why I was so excited Eintracht was not in the Europa League. I think uh, a team like that Eintracht can take advantage of. And I still have uh, that glimmer of a hope that uh, Eintracht can uh, be entering the Christmas holiday time period with uh, the possibilities of a top four finish still within our grasp. And, uh, hey, maybe another DFA Pokal run to the final and uh, us raising our sixth championship in that. The Minnesota Salad Bowl is just, you know, that ain't going to happen this year. All right, that was Brian Sanders of the Hey Eintracht Frankfurt podcast. You can hear a ton more of me uh, asking him about the Eagles on Patreon. Okay, so let us now turn our attention to the other team in, in Germany who are participating in the Champions League, which is to say Borussia Mönchengladbach. They of the you know surprising draw away in, in the Champions League last week, they, uh, they got a nice win. Uh, a come-from-behind win over uh, Mainz 05 in Mainz. And this was uh, a really gritty result. I, I was really surprised as I was watching the scores go by on, on, on Saturday, seeing them a goal down, that a couple of goals down uh, against, you know, one of the worst teams in the league so far. But uh, they found their way in this game. Yeah, I mean, they took the lead uh, through Lars Stindl, uh You know, I think it was after 14 minutes. But at that point, Mainz had actually pressed them an awful lot and you know it looked like the dominant side but you know having said that uh Lapa played with three at the back they even featured an academy player Rocco Reitz Rocco Reitz there you go uh holding midfielder and you know they, they had an awful lot of their best players on the bench and uh yeah Mainz weren't too bothered by that first goal and they they got back into that match and scored th- two goals through Mateta they were good for their 2-1 lead at half time the second half uh Marco Rosa decided Screw it, I'm not going to rest any more legs for that Champions League tie uh, against uh, Real Madrid come midweek. So he brought in Turam and play in the 53rd minute. Neuhaus and Hoffmann came on in the 60s and Wolf came on for Ambolo in the 30, uh, 73rd minute. So yeah, they uh, they went for it and... Um, once they got that two-two equalizer through a penalty, um, you just saw you just saw the heads go down uh, of of those minds players when it was two-two, because they they had the they had a couple of chances, half decent chances to make it three-one, and uh, at that point football becomes you know you you are you are tempted to use sort of your pop psychology, you sort you know the sort of one one course you've taken in college about psychology and. Uh, how these sort of things can impact you. But yeah, I mean, the body language of those players was, oh, crap, here we go again. And three minutes later, Matthias Ginter unmarked on a corner kick. And what can you say? Uh, You shouldn't give him too many of those chances because uh, he struck this one home ever so beautifully. What do you reckon this kind of result? You mentioned the sort of the body language of Mainz and and how, you know, there seems to be a, a distinct lack of belief among this team. I mean, with good reason. Their results have not gone their way. They've had a lot of matches where they've looked very, very poor. I mean, they already pulled the ripcord once on a coach. That doesn't seem to have done a lot of good. I mean, oddly enough, there's been, you know, two uh, high-profile coaching changes in the Bundesliga by the two worst clubs in the Bundesliga. (laughs) Neither one of those have have seemed to have done anything. I mean, Jan Moritz Lichter uh, of of Mainz, this is how they like to do things. They like to promote uh, internally when they can. Where do you see his, his future over the next weeks and months? I mean, this is not obviously a club where expectations are very much higher than stay in the league, but he's not 
off to a very good start, is he? No, he's the first Mines coach who's lost his first three matches on the bounce, which makes him sort of historic, but not in a good way. Uh, Mines have now lost five matches on the trot at the start of the season for the second time during the Bundesliga history. The first time was actually under Jurgen Klopp back in 2004-2005. They actually managed to stay in the league that season. Uh, which, uh, you know, if you are sort of a person who be- believes in good omens, um, you might take some heart from. But, you know, statistically speaking, if you've lost that many games at the start of the season, you are uh, highly likely to go down compared to other scenarios. <laughs> Listen, I think that Mines can take a lot of heart from this match in terms of actually being able to put up a very decent performance and pushing a side that is in the Champions League to its limits. And... What is going to be important are the few next matches, especially that match on match day seven between them and Schalke. If there is a winner in that one, that might very well turn the season around for one of those teams. You know, going by the performances I've seen of both teams and how they've developed under the new coaches, if you pressed me to give a prediction, I I, I would think that um, Mines look slightly more likely to be able to turn this one around even though Schalke are ahead of them in the standings right now. One point. One point. Ahead of, (laughs) basically, Schalke who have one point versus Mainz who have no points. Mm. So they're they're, uh, just a a hair's breadth away from each other. I would tend to agree, however. I, I, I really think that if you just look at the performances, as you say, Mainz have had a couple of games, especially this past one against Gladbach, uh, where they have looked like a credible side, whereas Schalke have, have really yet to to show much of anything. I mean, they got that point out of the Union game, and that, but that was just, that was, as the Germans say, that game was Zeus Fleisch, man. That was just, you know, <laughs> that was pretty tough meat. All right, let's let's leave that uh, discussion behind and uh, let's come back with part two. All right, it is part two of Talking Foosball, the part where we talk about the rest of the match day just gone. This was match day five. And of course, we have uh, a bunch of matches still to come, but I have some late breaking news. From where? From from Stavanger, Norway? Yes. It's a contest. It is indeed. So listen, we have invested a lot of time and effort into our Patreon channel this season. And we appreciate the fact that a fair few of you have already signed up. But we always want more people on board to, you know, share uh, all of our extra content this year. I mean, how many how many extra episodes of stuff have we put up so far? Quite a few. Before this edition of Talking Foosball, it has been 10. But I think this week we'll be adding uh, another two pieces of content, maybe even three, if everything comes in together. So it's coming thick and fast. It is indeed. So what we thought, I mean, to some of you, you, you might be sitting on the fence. And I thought, well, let me do something about that. Give you a little bit of extra motivation to, to sign up to Patreon. So as it turns out, you might very well have considered the possibility of me being an absolute complete German football nut. And yes, I am. My entire house is stuffed with books, magazines, match day programs, kits, DVDs, uh, you name it, I've got it. And what I thought I could do, once we've reached 50 patrons, which is uh, I think only three patrons away from now, is that I could take the name out of one random patron out of the hat and sort of create a care package for that person, you know, depending on what sort of football team, footballers, kits they like. I would get in touch with that person and we we would hammer something unique and special out. And um, yeah, that is my offer to you. Sign up to Patreon and, you know, once we are at 50, one of you is going to get a very pleasant mail. I love it. I love it. You you are channeling your, your German football memorabilia addiction to a good cause. And my girlfriend says, yeah, get rid of that stuff. And uh, yeah, now I am. <laughs> All right. Well, you know, it, it's it's going to be your treasure, folks, when it when you become the lucky 50 patron random winner. It'll, it'll be heading your way in no time. All right. So we've got several matches still to come here. Um, the first among them, we can probably uh, heap another dose of praise on uh, VfB Stuttgart for their 1-1 draw with Cologne, at least for their first half performance in this game. What did you make of this one, Nick? Yeah, Cullen came out of that dressing room looking absolutely asleep. 
Stuttgart scored after 24 seconds after keeping hold of the ball for pretty much 24 seconds. That was a bristling shot by Aurel Mangala, you know, who finished off a quick attacking move where Köln's player were nowhere near to be found uh, when it came to being near the ball. That's that's for me. That's that's the goal. Those are the goals that I love. Team goals where it just like bounces all around the side, you know, with this sort of unbroken move. Mm. I mean, even more than just the single moment of brilliance, those those goals where like an entire team move gets capped off with a goal, like it, that really does stuff for me. Yeah, it, uh, absolutely magnificent. And uh, I, I think besides Holland, Holland's goal is pretty much uh, the goal of the match day for me. Uh, funny stat when it comes to that, um, Stuttgart have now scored 16 goals during the first minute of Bundesliga matches, which puts them in first in the table of a the sides that have scored during the first minute of a, of a Bundesliga match. So uh, most Stuttgart fans are probably thinking if matches only lasted one minute, we'd be record champions. <laughs> I don't think football would be as popular if matches only lasted one minute, unless they paid a lot more of them. Yes, it might it might be a very different sport uh, indeed. But needless to say, Stuttgart gave away um, a penalty, silly penalty in the 22nd minute that was converted by Sebastian Anderson. Cologne's, uh, Cologne's new acquisition this summer from Union Berlin. After that, it was a level match uh, with chances going both ways, but um, in the end, probably deserved draw for both sides. But um, Stuttgart, eight points. They can be happy with their start to the season. Köln, another draw. Three draws on the bands now. But not really brilliant start to the season for them, and they're now 15 matches without a win, which is problematic for them. You would assume, and um, yeah, I think they've got Werder Bremen coming up two match days or next match day from now, and and then they have another tough game before the international break as well. So, yeah, they they definitely need to st- step it up a gear if they want to have a pleasant international break at the Geisbockheim. I love to hear you talking about games against Werder Bremen as a tough match. This is this is a place you've not you've not gotten to be in a while, Nick. I mean, it's a tough match for Cologne. Because there's an awful lot of stake. I mean, for for most of the sides in the Bundesliga, I wouldn't say that. Because um, I think that Werder Bremen have overperformed. Uh, or, you know, they've, they've got more points than they would have taken under normal circumstances so far. But yeah, for Cologne, definitely is a, is a vital match. And uh, the other match they're playing, coincidentally, on match day six, is against Bayern München. Mm, that's, that's not a tough match. Especially for Cologne, who don't have a frighteningly poor record against Bayern or anything. <laughs> Let's talk uh, about another one-one draw from the weekend. This uh, this one featured Union Berlin and uh, SC Freiburg. As you are about to tell us, this was not uh, necessarily as even a game as the scoreline would suggest. Yeah, if, if you take a look at the XG, which is pretty much the best sort of measure of stats that we do have these days, um, I mean, I could go on and rant on about how football stats are used com- in completely idiotic ways, but XG is actually pretty clear cut. Um, a, Union had an XG of 1.28, which is not necessarily brilliant, while Freiburg had an XG of 0.28. So under normal circumstances, Union Berlin should have won this match around 1-0, they didn't. Uh, they actually conceded the first goal of the match through a uh, goal by Vincenzo Grifo, uh, quickly equalized by uh, Andrich uh, two minutes later. And, you know, additionally, Union actually managed to to create 22 shots within one game, and that's a first for them in the Bundesliga, a new Bundesliga record for them. Uh, add to that that they're undefeated in four matches on the bounce, which is a new Bundesliga record for them in their, well, relatively young Bundesliga history. Indeed, indeed. Um, one other one-one draw uh, as the match day has, um, you know, uh, finished up to now. We we, we may well uh, get to the end of uh, Bayer Leverkusen versus Augsburg, which is running uh, as we record. But I, I have my doubts. I think we'll wrap up before that. Werder Bremen, your your boys uh, drew with Hoffenheim, which I consider a pretty good result. Do you? Yeah, me too. Uh, absolutely. Um, Werder Bremen, you know, they are taking their chances this season. And that's pretty much what's different compared to last season. Because um, after that dreadful defeat against Hertha on match day one, you know, they've actually been pretty good in front of goal. And 
you know, this time around it was Maxi Eggestein who hadn't scored in ages, who really, you know, he had that brilliant campaign in 1819 that was talk about him going to the German national team. And, you know, last season his ball con distribution was so poor. I don't think they, the national team would have even allowed him to be in the arena as a ball boy because they probably wouldn't have trusted him to, you know, place the ball in the hands of the player taking the throw in. It's kind of ball distribution was that poor but you know there you go he's 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 got a goal out of the blue um pretty well taken shot from 14 yards out and you know Werder was a bit unlucky to concede that uh 1-1 equalizer as it was a pass from uh i think it was the danish guys robert skov that pass was deflected and sebastian rudy had you know was uh, rather quick to just get the ball into the box to dennis geiger who hit it on the first touch and hit that perfectly Nothing much Jerry Pavlenka could do with that, but uh, other than that, um, Hoffenheim, they, they, you know, they tried their darndest, and other than a free kick that Robert Skov put onto the crossbar, they didn't create any sort of big chances of note throughout that entire second half. So, in the end, uh, probably, a, probably a disappointing result for Hoffenheim, who was closer to those three points than Werder, but yeah, good result for Werder, who are now on eight points from five matches, and uh, you know, as they say, eight points down, 32 to go. Um, but you know what? Considering one thing, on Tuesday, I'm actually going to chat with a journal from Visa Korea, and we're going to record another deep dive for the Patreon channel, which will be up by Tuesday, Wednesday. So yeah, you should definitely... You know, not only for the chance of winning some some really excellent literature and stuff, uh, but, you know, also for that, you should sign up to that Patreon channel. Spectacular. Let's not forget about Wolfsburg and Bielefeld's clash on Sunday. Uh, Wolfsburg got a 2-1 win in this one. This was their first win of the season. You know, it shouldn't surprise us, I guess. Wolfsburg have become sort of <laughs> famous for being um, draw merchants over the last couple of years, that, that it's taken them this long to get a win. But it was actually not as as sort of, uh, you know, dominating a win as one might have expected, uh, considering the, the sort of comparative uh, resources of these two clubs. I mean, certainly in the last, I don't know, maybe half an hour of this game, Bielefeld were definitely making their presence felt in Wolfsburg, I thought. Indeed. And, uh, you know, they got that go through Sven Schiplock, who coincidentally um, was subbed on for the 100th time of his Bundesliga career, which, you know, is, is, is a great stat. Uh, he's sort of like the, the reversed Patrick Herman, who's been substituted off most most of any Bundesliga player. But yeah, I mean, Wolfsburg pretty much had those two goals early on in the first half, 19th and 20th minute, I think. And, you know, after that, Bielefeld's. They were sort of trying to get back into it, and towards the end, yeah, they, they went close, and they got that goal through Sven Schicklock, but in the end, it was too little too late for them, and uh, for Wolfsburg, yeah. Definitely, finally, a win against an opponent they should have won against, and uh, that is a first for them this season. That is all for this edition of Talking Foosball, which was produced, as always, by Aidan Rantoul. You know, good to have you back uh, at my side on the pod here, Nick. Well, great to be back and, uh, yeah, looking forward to the rest of the season. Yeah, spectacular. You can, of course, find uh, Mr. Wildhagen on Twitter at Normusings. You can listen to his uh, his latest versions of, of Bundesliga history week by week, the Historic Match Day Moment series on Patreon, which we hope that you'll consider supporting. It's a really great way to keep this pod going and uh, give us a little bit of support for as little as $3 a month. If you want to contact us on Twitter, it's at Talking Foosball. I am back up and running on Twitter as well, at Mr. Matt Herman. Hey. And there was much rejoicing. Please do subscribe to the pod. Tell your friends about us. Bis zum nächsten Mal, yo. 